Salute. Slancha. Cheers. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk. Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and events with your guide, master of mixology, and Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. So sit back and get ready to stir it up. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on 570 KBI. It is Happy Hour in the Northwest, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio on 570 KBI. I am your host, your weekend wine guy, your master mixologist, and Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. So happy that you are joining us for a great hour, Seattle's most spirited hour of talk about wine, cocktails, spirits, fresh food, and events. We've got a great show today. Um, before I get into that, I want to share a little bit about myself. Who is this guy, Christopher Chan? Well, I'm the uh, director of the executive director of the Seattle Wine Awards and Oregon Wine Awards. So if you're looking for top notch wine from either Seattle, <laughs> Washington, or Oregon, check out the website, seattlewineawards.com and oregonwineawards.com. I just uh, finished a great 15 year career over at the, as the director of wine and spirits at the Rainer Club in Seattle. And uh, what did I do there? Let's see, I selected wines for the wine list. Created the bar list and signature drinks. Managed a team of service professionals um, for 15 years. Lots of fun, but I'm really loving this happy hour with you out there. If you'd like to uh, play along at home, check us out on our website, happyhourradio.net. And if you have a question or something you'd like to talk about on air, shoot us an email at ask at happyhourradio.net. Um, got a great show, like I said. Um, We've got Chef John Howie of Sea Star John Howie Steak and Sport Restaurant fame. He's going to chat about his Super Bowl experience and some cool private label uh, features he has at his restaurants. We also have the great Dr. Bill Lumson. He's the head of distilling and whiskey creation. Now, that's a title. Whiskey creation at Glen Morangie in Scotland. He'll be here. And right now, uh, we've got Reg Daniel, who is the wine technology coordinator at South Seattle Community College. Did you know we have a winery here in the city? You could be a winemaker and go to school over at South Seattle Community College. We're going to talk about uh, a little bit about that program and how to taste wine with Reg Daniel. Reg, good morning, and welcome to Happy Hour. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your background. Where did you get started? Well, I started in food and wine from age one, <laughs> age zero, <laughs> Um, my father was a bread baker. We lived above the bakery, and he made wine in the cellar. So uh, we were forced, child labor, to work in the bakery, which actually was fun, before and after school, and we made wine with him every year. Grew up uh, eating, drinking, tasting. We went to a lot of restaurants that he served his bread to, delivered his bread to. So I grew up in the industry, and it was kind of a natural for me to keep doing this. So bread and wine. His, his name wasn't Jesus, was he? <laughs> and what, uh, what city is this? What town was this? Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Really? And what kind of wine were you making in Philadelphia? Well, he had his grapes shipped from California. He had Zinfandel, Barbera. He's a, a, Italian, um, so it was all about Italian wine. And focaccia? Um, yeah, a little bit of that. Some pizza. 
all kinds of uh, great bread and rolls. It was all Italian bread bakery, but he did um, he did a little bit of Easter bread and some other stuff, some other fun stuff. How fun. That is really amazing. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. I and mean, we've known each other for a bunch of years. That's good. I'm glad you're here to tell us about, well, I'm getting hungry talking about <laughs> bread, and I see you've got some wine. So tell me about the, the South Seattle Community College wine program. Uh, well, we started, actually, this is our 10th year, 10th year anniversary. Um, we started in 2004. I started there in 2005, um, just two quarters after we got going. And in 2005 was our first vintage. We teach winemaking, wine marketing and sales, and food and wine pairing. So we give three different degrees, depending on your interest. And um, we have about 22 uh, winery alumni now, so winemakers who have become fairly famous in the industry, like John Patterson of Patterson Cellars. I hung out with John yesterday at a tasting. Uh, it was good to see him. He's making some great wine. He's amazing, and he's just a wonderful man, so we love supporting him. And uh, Kit Singh, who does Lauren Ashton, Lauren, oh. Lauren Ashton Cellars. And they were there, mm-hmm. too. <laughs> right on. <laughs> wow. Yeah, there's a lot of great wineries. Um, those are just two, but we sell our student made wines in our tasting room on campus, as well as our own wines that we make, which I brought two today. I love it. So what do you have there? Uh, what wines? I have um, an Italian blend that we produce. Now, all of our grapes are donated by growers in, Wa- in Washington That's State. That's cool. Yeah. We get about tw- uh, about 20 tons every year donated. That's a lot. It is. It's, it's like 2,000 cases almost. Wow. So I brought the... Italian blend, which is Sangiovese, Barbera, and Nebbiolo. We didn't know what to do with all three, so we threw them together. <laughs> that always works. <laughs> and it's delicious, actually. Like People pizza, love it. It's like a spaghetti sauce. Yeah, Lots exactly. of flavors. And the white? The white is a rosé that we decided to label White Merlot because we released it in winter, and we thought, oh, what a fun winter rosé. So... We have, um, actually, it's from Merlot grapes, and um, it was sonnied, if you know what that, well, I know you know what that process uh-huh. means. It's a French word for blood, mm-hmm. or to bleed. Mm-hmm. It okay. was bled off of Merlot grapes at OS Winery. Oh, so this is how it works for all those out in Happy Hour Radio Land. We uh, macerate the grapes, I mean, you crush them, and uh, grapes, I should say, wine gets its color from the skins and a lot of flavor and acidity, too. So the skins are a very important part of red wine making. So when you start macerating the grapes, um, it starts out as pink and gets dark and dark. And so you just took a little bit off the top, a little bit of the pink wine, and bottled it as white Merlot. Yeah, actually, um, so O.S. sonnied off of their Merlot, and then they said to us, would you like this juice? I mean, they donated oh. juice to us, so we took it from OS Winery in Georgetown, or actually, I'm sorry, South Park, and um, and then we fermented it and made it into a white Merlot. Pretty fun. That's neat, and that's how you can actually uh, add more concentration of flavor to red wine by just taking a little off the top. Yeah. Um, how long is the program? I mean, how many months or weeks does it take to uh, run through the Northwest Wine Academy program? It depends on the individual. If you can take three or four classes a quarter, you can be done in a year or a year and a half, depending on the path you choose. Um, most people, it takes two years. Although, 
most people don't want to leave, so they just keep coming back and doing more classes. But um, even John Patterson is in one of my classes now. Even though he's been through the program, he just wanted to come back and do another one. We will graduate. No winemaker before it's time. Is that how it works? <laughs> uh, I'm here speaking with Reg Daniel, the uh, Wine Technology Coordinator at South Seattle Community College and Northwest Wine Academy here on Happy Hour Radio. Uh, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about a couple of the wines they make, and um, their winemaker there is Peter Boss, correct? Yep, Peter is great. And he started, you said meant earlier that he had a, a, a watershed moment with Columbia Winery. Yep, Peter worked for Columbia. Well, Peter started, I think, in 1977 in the Washington wine industry as a winemaker or assistant winemaker. Uh, has worked with some Rob Griffin of Barnard Griffin, has worked with really famous um, winemakers, David Lake at Columbia Winery before he passed. Um, and actually, this moment, this watershed moment that you mentioned, Peter and David had made a Riesling that the fermentation stopped. You know, it was a stuck fermentation. And there was probably, I think, 9 or 10% alcohol and a fair amount of residual sugar left. So David was really pissed off and trying <laughs> to get that trying to get that fermentation going again and he they just didn't know what to do and Peter said, "Why don't we just leave it?" Uh, it tastes delicious and that became their cellar master riesling. Wow, fantastic. I love those kind of stories. It's cool. um, yeah. So, uh, we will jump into those wines and taste those and and share with uh, our audience how to taste wine from a sommelier's perspective and from the wine technology coordinator perspective here on Happy Hour Radio. Coming up after that, we'll have John Howie, chef of Sea Star, talking about a Super Bowl experience and Dr. Bill Lumpson of Glen Morangi. Stay tuned. Happy Hour Radio, 570 KVI. Looking for fresh marketing ideas? Find them with Christopher Chan and Happy Hour Radio. Just click happyhourradio.net and connect with him today. That's happyhourradio.net. And stay tuned for Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan, right here on 570 KVI. Are you a Washington homeowner facing foreclosure? Then you need to know about Washington's foreclosure mediation program. Neutral third-party mediation services are available for you and your lender. If you're worried about losing your home, learn more at www.homeownership.wa.gov or call 1-877-894-HOME. That's 1-877-894-HOME for free foreclosure prevention counseling. Don't wait. Call today. Time for another round. You're listening to Happy Hour Radio, Seattle's most spirited hour of talk with Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. Hey, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio here with Reg Daniel of uh, South Seattle Community College Wine Program. Come up on our show, we've got Chef John Howie and Dr. Bill Lumpson of Glen Morin to be joining us. But right now, uh, if you ever want to know how to taste wine, I mean, really, how to taste wine, this is the moment. And uh, Red's going to take us through uh, a tasting of how we approach tasting a wine. And this is the La Scola. La Scala? La Scuola. La Scuola, which is uh, an Italian blend of Nebbiolo, Sangiovese, and Barbera. Great. So, Reg, uh, lead the way. Okay. Well, La Scuola is a red wine. And La Scuola actually means the school in Italian. That's oh. why we chose that name. Appropriate. Yeah. So I have a white sheet of paper in front of me, and I am tilting my glass 45 degrees 
you know, towards that white paper so I can see what the line looks like. We always do a visual first because if there's something floating in there, you might not want to put it in your mouth. <laughs> Very good. Look at the wine. So speaking of that, we're going to, we're going to talk about looking at it, smelling it, mm-hmm. tasting it, and then wrapping up with a finish. So, so we're looking at this beautiful red wine. Yeah. How would you describe it? Well, it looks, it looks like it has a little purple in it. You know, it's got, we define purple with a little blue in the red. So I could still see a little blue in the red, and it looks fairly bright. There's a little bit of cloudiness, but it's mostly clear. And um, we would say that it's medium intensity of color. Sure, and clear means that it's translucent, that you can actually see through it, so it's not so dark or opaque that you can see your fingers below it. That's how you know. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah, and um, so it looks good. It's okay to put in our mouth, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> so now we want to do the nose test, and that is, well, a couple things before you put it up to your nose that are important. Uh, I teach my students. First of all, you want to keep your mouth slightly open when you smell because it creates this channel that allows for aromas to go back uh, towards your olfactory bulb where you you know, detect them. Um, so keep your mouth slightly open. And then the other thing is you don't want to swirl right away because the most volatile aroma that gets forced out of the glass when you swirl is alcohol. So force yourself not to swirl right away. Right. Some of those aromas are layered. So certain aromas have different weights. And there's a lot of smell, a lot of aroma or bouquet right uh, off the wine. Exactly. Um, So you want to get those delicate aromas out of the glass before you overwhelm the the delicate ones with alcohol. So stop yourself from swirling and smell without swirling first. All right, so tell us what you smell in this wine. Oh, it's awesome. I love it. It's like a black raspberry right Uh, off the bat. I agree. A little bit of like caramel brown sugar. So we have some red fruits. We have some Mm -hmm. caramel brown sugar notes from the barrel. Yeah, and some spice. And some spice. And uh, there's a floral note, red flowers. Yeah, yeah. And a little bit of... Uh, yeah. um, Maybe a blackberry or Yeah, the blueberry. spice is really coming through. Yeah. So we've got some fruits, we've got some flowers, and we've got some spice. And that should really translate into taste because smell is really taste. And that's without swirling. Without swirling. That's all without swirling. So if we swirl and then we smell, it should be similar, but it, you could get different things. Oh, yeah, and I do. I actually get like a little um, shower curtain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny because there's a, a, a famous line in that movie, Psalm, called <laughs> Fresh Cut Garden Hose. <laughs> so we have a new shower curtain. Sometimes we say rubber tire, right. you know, from a tricycle. But sure. um, in this case, I do get a little bit, and I, I find that very charming. But it's mixed in with everything else, so it's not just that. Okay, and then now how do, what's next with the palate? Yeah, I guess we have to drink it. We have to drink it. And uh, as a professional, we, we sip, we swirl, and we spit. And that keeps you fresh because you really want to have um, an ability to speak wisely about the wine. Um, so don't swallow. And, and a lot of times I always say it's the second sip because the first sip gets your mouth um, acquainted with the wine, and the second sip really allows you to appreciate it with all the flavors. So what are you getting out of this La Squala? I agree with the two-sip assessment. Um, The first sip, I think, sets your palate, and then the second sip, you really get what's going on. So the black raspberry, it's like a tin of raspberry candy 
on the palate. It's delicious. Agreed. But, but not as sweet. Mm, it's not sweet, but it's bright, too. The acid really balances that mm. fruit flavor. Yeah. So we would call this wine dry. We, we start from, you know, how does it feel? How does it taste on the palate? So we start with dry. Is it dry or sweet? It is dry, of course. It is dry. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it's not fruity. Okay. And then we go into weight. The weight and of the wine? The weight of the wine. It's it's medium-bodied, right? Yeah, it's medium. It's not a big wine. It's, you know, yeah. Nebbiolo is very light and bright and says it's Sangiovese. You can feel some alcohol. There's a little bit of heat, but mm-hmm. it's not overwhelming. So it's acidity balanced. is moderate plus to high? Yeah, I think acid is medium at least. Um, there's a little bit more than medium there. Yeah, we'll say moderate plus, yeah. medium plus. And yeah. then alcohol, so we're talking about some tannin. Where's the tannin on this wine? I think it's medium medium i it's, agree yeah it's not too tannic so it's nice because it it ba- it's balanced within the wine uh so we've got uh the fruit notes are do they consistent with what you smell yes the raspberry and absolutely okay and the spice notes so we talked about the dryness the weight the fruit uh some of the other the flowers and spice we've got uh, a, a note on the tannin the alcohol and the acidity and is this wine complex where would you rate this wine and in terms of... I think medium complexity. Yeah, it's moderately interesting. Mm-hmm. It's cute. Yeah, and it's fun, and it's balanced, and I think it has a fairly long finish to Very it. Very good. Yeah. I love it. So these are all the words you want to use to impress your friends. <laughs> long finish, complex, balanced, etc. So, Reg, so glad to have you here to, to share with us how to taste wine. I'll put that up on the website at happyhourradio.net. And uh, if you have a question for me or for Reg, it's at please email us, ask at happyhourradio.net. Thanks for coming today, Reg. Thank you, Christopher. It's a pleasure. And next up, I'm really, you know, I still got Seahawk fever. I hope you do too because, gosh, we've waited so long. Um, Chef John Howie, uh, owner of Sea Star Restaurant and Raw Bar in Seattle and Bellevue, John Howie's Steak in Bellevue, and Sport Restaurant and Bar right here at uh, Fisher Plaza in Seattle. John Howie, Chef, welcome. Hey, thank you, Christopher. <laughs> Good to have you. So, um, t- how did you get into cooking? Well, it's kind of a funny thing. I'm sort of like Reg when uh, I'm not quite as early as her, and my family wasn't involved so much that the babysitter was. Uh, my babysitter, when I was like five years old, tried to make popcorn and burned it. Oh, my goodness. And I'd watched my mom make it several times. This is before we had microwaves, microwave, folks. Okay? And air poppers, yeah. too. Yeah, exactly. And so you had to put the oil in the pan and cover the pan, put the put the little kernels in there and pop it up. And so at five years old, I made my first batch of uh, popcorn, and it came out great. So Excellent. You were... I just had a knack for it. Off and running. I was off and running. And then I, I made a lot of family meals and stuff for my family throughout the years as I was growing up. And then when I was 15, I needed a job. And restaurant was the, the perfect choice. And where did you grow up? Um, actually, at that time, I was living in the Seattle area in, in Bellevue. And my first first job was at a place called The Refectory. And it was a block and a half away from where Seastar is now, Seastar Bellevue. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. And then great. A, then across the freeway to a place called Emmett's, which was an old consolidated restaurant. Emmett's. Very fine dining, tableside flambe, whole thing. I learned, learned a lot there. Where was Emmett's located? It was on Bellevue Auto Row. <laughs> it later became a, a cowboy bar with one of those bucking Broncos in it. And oh, stuff. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Wow. And so you graduated from what, prep cook or busboy? Or... Well, it's funny because I started um, as a busboy at the refectory. We all did. And then I actually got the job of pantry cook before dishwasher, which was kind of interesting because most people have to go through that dishwashing job in the kitchen. But uh, I got hired by the sous chef at Emmett's, and he said, I want to be here when you come out of the closet. 
Okay. What does that mean? Well, you know what that means. He's yeah, by the way, he's still waiting. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> and so you know, back in 1975, I guess you could get away with that. Uh, and uh, so I actually learned how to work all of the positions in the kitchen there, and it was it was a lot of fun. Wow, we're here with uh, Chef John Howie of Sea Star Restaurant and Raw Bar on Happy Hour Radio. I'm chatting about his experience and uh, his. Uh, experience over at the Super Bowl. So when did you start your restaurants? I mean, you went from pantry cook to lead cook to line cook, and tell us. Well, and then I, I worked for some really great restaurateurs and, and restaurants in the Seattle area, and eventually was convinced to go to work for Restaurants Unlimited. R-U-I. The, R-U-I. At, at this time, um, Rich Coleman still owned and controlled the, the company, and what a great man he was, and I learned a lot from, from Rich. And I took over at uh, Triples, which was down on Lake Union, a, a fun place to go. I, I waited tables there. Yeah, and that, that was my first chef position with, with them. And then uh, I wanted to be the guy to open Palisade, which was Rich's dream oh, restaurant. that's right, that's right. He kind of fashioned it after John Dominus in, in Honolulu, you know, with all the co-wood and the live saltwater pond in the yeah, center of it. Yeah, it's a beautiful location and interior. Yeah. And so he took us all out on a boat one day and kind of pointed at that bluff on Magnolia and said, hey, that's where it's going to be. That's where the restaurant's going to be. And so from that point on, it was my focus to become the opening chef of that restaurant. And I was chosen as opening chef back in 1991. Open Palisade. In that 90- long ago? That long ago. Oh, my. Open Palisade in 92 and was there for over 10 years. And then I uh, decided to go out on my own. That's great. And so your first restaurant on your own was? Sea Star Bellevue. Okay. Which opened March 11th. Uh, 2002. So it'll be 12 years old this coming March. It's like little children grow up so fast. (laughs) They do. But it was a, you know, and actually it was kind of an interesting situation. Um, That restaurant opened kind of in the dot-com bust Uh, six months directly after uh, 9-11. There was a heyday. Yeah, tough. Yeah. And so Uh, it was a tough time. And and then I opened up Sport at a tough time and then opened up and purchased Adriatic Grill with my partner, Bill Trudnowski, down in Tacoma. At a tough time. So it seems like every time I open a restaurant, it's kind of a tough time. Seattle Sea Star, January 15th, 2009. We all know what it was like then. Oh, my goodness. John Howie Steak, you know, 9-11, 2009. Talk about the roll of the dice because it takes so long to plan to open up a restaurant. You can't figure for some of that economy stuff. You don't know what it's going to be like. You really don't. I mean, your plans are that it's going to stay the way it is and that things are going to be good. But, you know, you work through it, and we've, we've done a great job of working through it and have been very successful. And uh, your restaurants are certainly prime places to dine. I love Sea Star in Bellevue, and the sport is really fun. And, of course, John Howie's steak is very classy. Uh, we're here with John Howie, chef of all those great restaurants here on Happy Hour Radio. So I understand that you've got some cool products that you've uh, introduced to your yeah, we've been having a lot of fun with beverages lately. Yeah, tell us what you've, <laughs> what's on the menu over there. Well, just, just released, actually... Uh, Today is our, our bourbon, <laughs> and it's not that we made the bourbon, but I took my my sommelier Eric Lead home, my chef from John Howie Steak, and my my bar operations manager from John Howie Steak, Tim Lodal, over to Kentucky, and we went to Woodford Reserve. Great what, place, yeah, great, 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 great mm-hmm. bourbon. And what they do is they take you through a tasting. They take samples out of eight barrels, and so you're doing this at a barrel sample strength, which is kind of difficult. It's Anywhere from 128 proof to about 138 proof. Right out of the still proof. and into the barrel. Well, well, it's been in the barrels for about five to six years uh-huh. and some of them as long as seven years. And so we tasted all the different barrels and kind of took down our notes, kind of like what you just did with Reg on the, on the wines. Yeah. You know? Took down the notes. What are you smelling? What are you tasting? It's usually a lot sweeter, a lot more caramel, that type of stuff. 
And so we go through all that, and then we decided on what four barrels we wanted out of the eight. And then they blended it and took it down, adding distilled water to what is bottle proof, which Very is about cool. 90 proof. All right. So we're going to unveil or re- reveal that special bourbon here uh, following our break on Happy Hour Radio. I'm talking with John Howie, chef. He says private label bourbons. And uh, speaking of bourbon, we've got Dr. Bill Lumpson coming on. A little bit, uh, head distiller for Glenn Morangi here on Happy Hour Radio. If you have questions, email them, ask at happyhourradio.net, or check out the website, happyhourradio.net. Looking for fresh marketing ideas? Find them with Christopher Chan and Happy Hour Radio. Just click happyhourradio.net and connect with him today. That's happyhourradio.net. And stay tuned for Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan, right here on 570 KVI. Getting your child home safely. Tap your heels together three times. Is just a click away. There's no place like home. But making sure your child is in the right seat is just one of the steps down the road to safer travels. I don't know how it works. Find the right seat for your little one's age and size. There's no better way to get home safely. Know for sure that your child is in the right seat. How can I ever thank you enough? Get all the facts at safercar.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. The glass is always half full. You're listening to Happy Hour Radio with the Commodore of Cocktails, Christopher Chan. Hey, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. I am your Commodore cocktails. Christopher Chan speaking with Chef John Howie, and we were chatting about his private label bourbon that he's picked out and blended in Kentucky at Woodford Reserve. So tell us more. You were just telling us about sampling eight specific burbles, <laughs> bourbon samples. <laughs> yeah, well, what they do is, again, there's the eight barrels, and we narrowed it down to four, and then they blended that, and there's, so there's six different two-barrel blends that you taste, and we decided which one we liked the most. And so that was the one that we chose. And then what happened is that they bottled all of that for us. So we got 181 liter bottles of our own private label bourbon. So it's it's basically called John Howie Private Selection Woodford Reserve. Awesome. Awesome. So 180 bottles. That'll last us six months then, right? Yeah. <laughs> hopefully not. And was I, I want to go uh, back and do it again. <laughs> uh, was the decision making unanimous or was there a little bit of uh, arm wrestling there? Well, I think there there was only one issue that we had. One of the barrels was actually put up on the date that my son was born, not the actual year, but on his birthday. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of leaning towards that one and pushing people a little bit on that one. It's also the date that I got my only hole-in-one, so it had to be a good date for me. It had to be a great barrel, right? Oh, hole-in-one in, in many different ways. Yeah, and, it did it. End, and it did end up being one of the barrels we chose. So. Awesome. Yeah. And it's called, once, what's it called again? The John Howie Private Selection Woodford Reserve Bourbon. Mm, I can't wait. Released today, so uh, head over to uh, John Howie Steak or Sea Star Restaurant and Raw Bar or even Sport. I imagine you'll have it all three places? We will have it at all three places, yeah. Wonderful. I can't wait. And it's happy our folks get out there. And... Yeah. Um, Tell us, you also have a, a Merlot and a Champagne? Well, yeah. We've done the Champagne for two years now, and the Merlot as well. We did a 2010 and a 2012. The Merlot is made by Mark Ryan. Cool so guy. Really yeah. great, really great winemaker. And he got some absolutely wonderful juice this year, all from Red Mountain. It's 100% Merlot, so it's it's not a blend at all. It's not even a slight 
difference. You know, it's it's full Merlot and it's absolutely incredible. And we serve that in all our restaurants as well. And that's a 2010. That's no, that's a 2012. 2012. We, we did 2010. We sold oh, it out. I see. Okay. We didn't do it in 11 because we didn't feel it was quite sure. right. Sure, it was and, cool vintage. And then 12, 2012 was a wonderful vintage. Mm-hmm. Lots of juice, and so we made. A and whole what's bunch. your Merlot called or titled? It's just John Howie Merlot. <laughs> Very simple, folks. Yeah. Get you just remember that John Howie yeah, Bourbon, John works. Howie Merlot, John Howie Steak. We also we also have champagne and John Howie champagne. Or and is it actually, Jean. It's uh, it's J H R. So John Howie Restaurant Champagne, and it's actually made in Champagne, and it's uh, Duvalois. Ah, a really great producer yeah. there, and we just kind of uh, work with them to decide what we want to blend in for our blend. And so is this, this three great blend: Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Chardonnay. Yes. And uh, is it a it's a non vintage or a multi vintage? It's, it's a multi vintage. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And so it's J H R. John Howie Restaurants. John Howie Restaurants. <laughs> mm. And how much did you make of that? Um, well, that one, you know, I'm not sure how many cases. I kind of leave that up to Eric a little bit. But we've uh, we've always got it on the menu at the restaurant, so it's it's great to have there. And it's a really nice-priced, true champagne, though. I love that. And I bet you probably opened a bottle for that Seahawks Super Bowl win. Yeah. Uh, we actually did. Oh, in, good. In the car on the way home. <laughs> so I understand that you've been participating with the NFL um, with the Super Bowl. Uh, what do they do there? You're a Super Bowl chef. What's that about? Well, it's the taste of the NFL. And it is a party the night before the Super Bowl in the city where the Super Bowl is held. And it's a charitable event, so it's called Party with a Purpose. And so what they do is they'll sell up to 3,000, 3,500 tickets. And in New York, it was 700 bucks a person. Wow. And so all that money comes in, and every team has a chef and a player that represent the team. And the chef brings food from their region, and that's representative of what they do or what their region does. Mm. And everybody can walk around. It's kind of like a big taste of the nation. Yeah, yeah. Or a bite of Seattle kind of a thing. Yeah. And there's some auction, and then there's a band, and it's a, a gigantic party. And all of the money that's raised actually comes back to food um, hunger organizations like Food Lifeline in Seattle. That's a good cause. It is. And what did you make? Um, this year, I did a lemongrass ginger crusted salmon over sushi rice with a Thai red curry coconut sauce and a little bit of a kaffir lime leaf slaw. On top. Wow! It actually got named uh, as one of the winning dishes that night. Um, really? Yeah, there was a uh, CNN reporter who uh, just tasted Denver's and ours, uh-huh. and we won. <laughs> I'm not sure if it was quite the killing that it was on the, the field the next day, but uh, it was it was still good. What was Denver serving? Rocky Mountain oysters? Um, actually, I believe they were serving a venison sausage or something like that. So. <laughs> Yeah, well, it fell flat either way, right? <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't quite the same. Uh, well, fantastic. I, can we try some of that salmon at one of your restaurants? Or was that just a one-time? Um, it's it's one of the dishes that we do in. Uh, it's part of a dish that we've done, and mm. and we do bring it around once in a while. So it's you know we like to change things up all the time. So. Sure. Yeah. And uh, well, I can't wait to get over there and try John Howie Bourbon, John Howie Merlot, and uh, J H R Champagne, and maybe I'll have some food too. That's, it's not a bad idea. They kind of go well together. Well, and uh, the Super Bowl must have been great, knowing that you uh, you beat Denver on on the plate, and we beat them on the field. Well, you know, and when we went to Detroit, I actually brought back a trophy. It was the dip off contest. There the was, dip off. Yep, it was on Good Morning America. I brought crab dip. The guy from Pittsburgh brought bean dip. It wasn't even a contest. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Three River Bean Dip, is that what it was? Yeah, something like that. Three River (laughs) Black Bean Dip, I don't know. Oh, I love it. Um, So fun, and thanks for sharing uh, um, your Super Bowl experience. And It's great to have a guy like you who's a real Northwest guy to go out and and show everybody that uh, our corner of the world has lots of great things. Um, 
great food, great people, great restaurants such as yours. And uh, um, I'm glad you're here. I hope to have you again. I know you're down, down at a sport restaurant below us here at Como Fisher Studios, and we can have you and talk about some fresh items in the spring. We've got some fun stuff coming up. We actually have a uh, brewery and a distillery in the works. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, you sold me. <laughs> um, we're talking with John Howie, uh, Chef John Howie of Sea Star Restaurant and Raw Bar. John Howie Steak and Sport. Thanks for being here, John. Hope you had a good time. My pleasure, Christopher. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So uh, coming up next, we have uh, Dr. Bill Lumpson of Glen Morangy, uh, who is the head distiller and whiskey creator for uh, the venerable Scotland Distillery. But before we introduce uh, the Dr. Bill, I want to tell you about a couple events. We've got the Seattle Food and Wine Experience happening tomorrow, February 23rd, over at the Seattle Center Exhib- Exhibition Hall. Um, check it out. It's an amazing event. They've got great food hundreds of wines, spirits, etc. The Seattle Wine and Food Experience tomorrow. I'll be there. Look for me. Also coming up, we've got uh, Meet Your Maker, a grand distillery tasting uh, over at the Old Rainier Brewery on Sunday, March 2nd. And, um, oh, Reg was going to tell us about an event at South Seattle Community College on Friday, March 7th, where they'll be doing a new release of some wines. So hope you'll uh, join me at some of these events. Um, check them out on the website at happyhourradio.net. So I have to welcome Dr. Bill Lumpson from Scotland. And what are they, how do they say welcome in Scottish? We just use that word, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There possibly is a Scottish Gaelic word for it. Ah, right. And um, this is great. I love the accent. Yeah. It's real. You are a real Scotsman. Absolutely. And what town uh, or village were you born in? Yeah, I, I was born in the town of Greenock, which is about 25 miles west of Glasgow. So I now live in Edinburgh. So to my Edinburgh neighbours, I'm still regarded with a degree of suspicion. I'm a dirty <laughs> west coaster. I love it. And uh, welcome to Seattle. And Thank happy you. to have you here. I know that you and I had the pleasure of doing some tasting a couple of years back. Yeah. And it's good to see you again. So tell us about the doctor part. Yep, I did a PhD at university. I did my first degree, which was cell biology and biochemistry. And basically, I loved science and studying so much, I wanted to prolong that. So one of the best ways of doing that was to study for a PhD. Uh, I did my PhD at Heriot Watt University in Edinburgh, which in the science department has a very famous brewing and distilling school. Mm. So that was kind of my first into the world of whiskey. And so you, they made some whiskey there at uh, the they, distillery? They didn't at that time. They do now have a pilot distillery, but they studied whiskey. But I think more than anything, what really happened was that I discovered the taste of malt whiskey, and it was that that made me decide, that's a cool industry. I want to work in that. <laughs> so th- I would imagine, um, well, now that you've just transferred your biochemistry uh, doctorate into a uh, distillation doctorate, yeah. is it very similar? Well, th- there certainly is a lot of science involved in the way whiskey is made. My PhD was actually focusing on fermentation and where the different flavors come from. And I'm often asked if the science really helps uh, in what I do. You know, it helps up to a point. It helps give me a great understanding. But I always believe it's more about art and craft than it is science in terms of making whiskey. Wow, I love it. That's So you're an artiste with a D- PhD. In some respects, I'm an artiste. <laughs> we are speaking with Dr. Bill Lumpson, head of distilling and whiskey creation here on Happy Hour Radio, chatting about his uh, his upbringing in Scotland, his education. And let's just jump into uh, scotch. Um, scotch is really the whiskey that is distilled in Scotland, correct? Absolutely. For, for it to be legally called scotch, of course, 
course, that has to be produced, distilled and matured in Scotland. And how long is the maturation? The, the maturation by law has to be a minimum of three years. But for deluxe whisky, for single malt scotch whisky, you know, normally it'll be a lot longer than that. And it isn't normally bottled till it's at least seven or eight years old. Sure, because they want that age oh, and that... Yeah. Uh, smooth, round character. Um, the difference between Irish whiskey and Scotch whiskey is uh, a little bit about the actual number of times they distill? In terms of Irish pot still whiskey, yes, the, our Irish friends will distill it three times. Whereas in Scotland, we're looking for something which has a bit more flavour, a bit more richly flavoured, because the more times you distill, the closer to just pure alcohol you get and the less flavour. So like there are different styles of whiskies. Sure, like vodka, the continuous still. Correct. Keep it, trying to purify yeah. it. So uh, scotch, and that starts with a specific grain, correct? It can only be one grain. Yeah, it, there's two types of whisky we make in Scotland. There's malt whisky, which can only be made with 100% malted barley. And this is the original and traditional style. But we also make some grain whisky for which you can use any cereal, although in practice oh. we only use wheat or corn. But grain whiskey isn't really bottled in it, its own. It's mixed with malt whiskey to produce what's known as blended scotch. Sure, and so um, Scotland has actually two distinct whiskies: a blended whiskey, which starts out with... Will you tell us, Doctor? Yeah, bl blended whiskey is made on a much larger scale. It's very consistent. It's good for long drinks, things like that. And it's distilled in a column still. So the spirit is about 94% alcohol. Malt whiskey is much more artisanal, handcrafted, and it's done in little copper pot stills. So it's made in much smaller volumes. It's a much more expensive product, and it's more richly flavoured. And how many distilleries are in Scotland? Um... If my counting is right, I reckon there are currently 108 malt whiskey distilleries and seven grain whiskey distilleries. Wow. So that's a lot of distilleries for a small country with only five million people. <laughs> <laughs> Making a lot of whiskey. And uh, we're talking with Dr. Bill Lumsden, the head of distilling and whiskey, whiskey creation at Glen Morangy. And it's pronounced Morangy, correct? Morangy, as in rhymes with the fruit orange. Excellent. So good. We are learning so much today. I'm pleased that you're here. And the idea be to be behind a single malt is... Tell us about that. Yeah, a single malt means that it can be produced only at one single distillery. So Glenmorangie is only produced at Glenmorangie. Ardbeg only at Ardbeg. And I've heard some people say, well, tell me, well, what is a double malt? There's no such thing. <laughs> you, you can mix two or more malts together to have a third category called blended malt, which can cause a bit of confusion in the minds of consumers. But single malt... Single estate made at only one distillery. Oh, and I see you brought some samples for us to try today. Did, and, indeed. Uh, tell you what, uh, we're going to be right back on Happy Hour Radio with Dr. Bill Lumpson from Glenmorangie Distillery. Looking for fresh marketing ideas? Find them with Christopher Chan and Happy Hour Radio. Just click happyhourradio.net and connect with him today. That's happyhourradio.net. And stay tuned for Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan, right here on 570 KBI. 
add some color and warmth to the lives of seniors in Seattle with Let's Paint at Norse Home. Color influences our mood, emotions, and state of mind. Saturday, March 1st, donate a few hours and give a lifetime of joy by adding some color to the walls of Norse Home. You'll help enrich the lives of the seniors who live there. Plus, enjoy free food and refreshments. Learn more at norsehome.org. Grab some friends and make the day a little brighter with Let's Paint at Norse Home. That's norsehome.org. Grab a stool. You're listening to Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio, with master mixologist Christopher Chan. <laughs> I am the master mixologist and here today with Dr. Bill Lumpson, head of distilling and whiskey creation from Glen Bollinger. Doctor, tell us about scotch. I know that there's a couple islands out there and different... Uh, different places where scotch is distilled. Um, what's the difference? And tell us where those areas are. Yep. Officially and historically, there's four main producing regions, which are Highland, Lowland, Isla, and Campbelltown. Campbelltown historically had about 26 distilleries. It's now got three, so there's not as many made there. And then, of course, within the larger Highland region is the area with the highest concentration of malt distilleries, that's Speyside. But, you know, they, these serve primarily as geographical locators, and they don't necessarily dictate the character of the whiskey. That's more down to the way in which it's produced. So each distillery has its own unique style and uh, flavor profile. It does. And you know, that, that's more to do with you know, the type of barley they use, whether it's peated or unpeated, the size and shape of the stills and the type of barrel it's produced in. But I know you, you mentioned earlier, Chris, about Isla. And everyone has this thought that Isla whiskies are very peaty and very smoky and very medicinal. And they are. But it's not just because they're an Isla, it's because the barley is dried over a peat fire. So we could make that style of whiskey elsewhere if we wanted to. Is all the peat on Isla or is there peat bogs elsewhere in yeah, Scotland? The, the, the majority of peat that's used on Isla is on Isla, but there's peat everywhere in Scotland. You know, at Glenmorangie Distillery, the hill, which is called Altna Main, above the distillery, there's people cut peats there. And in fact, when I was distillery manager there, one of my stillmen used to go and cut peats, and I loved the smell from his fire of an evening. That could be the new patchouli. It could indeed, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, well, tell us about um, Isla whiskies. And I know you talked about the peat smoke. And why is the Isla area so distinctive? They just choose to be, to be smoky and peaty? Yeah, hi historically, nearly all of the whiskey made in Scotland, the barley would be dried over a peat fire because this was before oil and gas and electricity and such like. But on Isla, there's two factors. Peat is plentiful. The whole island is like a giant floating peat moss. <laughs> and the second thing is they've chosen to stick with a very old-fashioned, very traditional way of making it. So our Isla brand Ardbeg and Glenmorangie are almost polar opposites in terms of character. Yes. And the term Glen, tell us what that means, because there's Glenlivet, Glenmorangie, yeah. Glen... Yeah. Glen there's there, there's yeah. about half the distilleries in Scotland have the prefix Glen in front of them. And actually, somebody asked me in Houston if all these distilleries were founded by someone called Glen. And I said, <laughs> no, that's, that's not the case. Glen is a Scottish word for a valley. And again, historically, the distilleries were often situated in valleys because the water ran down the hillside into the distillery to allow them to produce. It makes sense. Yeah. So it's all about location, location, location. 
And I see you've brought three samples of Glen Morangie, but how many whiskies do you produce overall or create in this term? Yep. Uh, at the moment, in the core Glen Morangie range, we have seven different expressions. And then I supplement that at least once a year with a new annual limited release, which is the Companta we have here. That's just been released. Um, I'm also I'm working on, I think it's 29 potential new Glenmorangie products at the moment. They may not all see the light of day in bottled form, but you know there's a big expectation from our consumers and within the company that we'll keep producing new delicious whiskies. Wild. That's a lot of whiskies. And I'm excited to jump into the Glenmorangie original. And uh, this is a 10-year-old whiskey, and this is the base spirit. It is. This, as the name suggests, this is the original and traditional house style of Glenmorangie. So the rest of the range is built on this. This is the backbone of the range. It's the most popular, and it's a very, very elegant, very easy-drinking whiskey. Excellent. I would take us through a, a nosing. And, yeah. and when you drink whiskies or, or taste whiskies, the traditional term is called a nosing. So start yeah. with it. Yeah. On, on the bouquet of the original at full strength, it's very fresh. It's very clean. You get lots of nice vanilla sweetness, hints of honey, some nice fruits in there. You know, sometimes it makes me think of pear or apple, sometimes a bit more like peach or apricot. But it's a beautiful, clean range of flavours. Makes yeah. me want to just dive right into the glass. <laughs> so just like when we start with the color, tell us about the color of this spirit. Yeah, the, the color has been leached naturally from the inside of the oak barrels. So it's a nice pale gold color. Whereas the Companta next to it has been matured in red wine barrels, hence the much darker color. And so the flavor profile, or the nosing profile, was peach and apricot and uh, floral and honey. And that should translate directly to the flavor profile, correct? Flavor, it starts off with a soft, creamy mouthfeel. There's lots of nice sweet vanilla or creme brulee. Some nice mouth-watering citrus fruit like lemon or mandarin orange. Gentle spices, very gentle, and a nuttiness like almond or coconut or something like that. I love this. It's very mm. complex. For mm. It's very elegant at the same time. Yeah. It's like a really fine wine. It is. You know, that, that's what it's known as. And a famous whiskey writer, Jim Murray, always describes original as complexity at its most complex. I agree. This mm. is fantastic. Mm. And so this is the original um, spirit, the mm. Glenmorangie 10 year, which yeah. is the orange label. And I see you have uh, an 18 year. This is called Extremely Rare? Yeah, this is the, the, the Extremely Rare 18 year old. This is the big brother of original in style. So it shares a lot of the same characteristics as the original does, but it's just a little bit bolder a little bit more intense, but I strive very hard to make sure it has the same DNA in it. And how long have you been with Glenmorangie? This is my 19th year with the company now. So this this one is truly your baby? Oh, absolutely. Oh, how fun. It's learning to drive at 18. (laughs) But don't drink and drive. Okay, so we have the extremely rare 18-year-old spirit. And, And why did you determine, why is 18? You said you didn't like 16... Not 17? It's just, if you're looking for a particular balance of flavour between the distillate and the oak wood, you can choose to bottle it at different ages. So this one has an incredibly perfumed bouquet. So I sometimes, tongue-in-cheek, refer to it as the Chanel Number no. 5 of malt whiskey. <laughs> There's no copyright infringement on that, I'm sure. We can do that uh, here on the radio. <laughs> Speaking with Dr. Bill Lumsden, head distiller and whiskey creator for Glenmorangie. And uh, we just tasted the Glenmorangie 10-year original. And now we're diving into the extremely rare 18-year-old. So tell us about this whiskey. 
Yeah, it's got slightly bolder flavours, lots of floral notes, and I always say it reminds me of lemon blossom, of honeysuckle, of narcissus, of night-scented jasmine. Then all the citrus fruit notes kick in, then you get a bit of honeycomb, and then there's a nuttiness, but it's different from the original. It I said is different. It, it's more like hazelnut or walnut. Yes, there's a little bit of tan, mm. and there's, there's probably yeah. more wood. The, the texture of, of this wine is, yeah. <laughs> this spirit mm. is uh, mm. definitely more full-bodied. Yeah. Yeah. I, I use a small amount of sherry casks in the makeup of this whiskey, and that always gives a slightly oily mouth-coating texture to it. But this is what I would call a sipping whiskey. It's one to take your time and sip and savor. Yeah, because the finish on this is quite long, and uh, obviously the complexity lingers on the palate, which yeah. I, I always uh, like to have a great product should always have a great long finish, mm-hmm. something that lasts I the agree. flavor in your mouth. And um, is this the oldest whiskey you create? 18 years? Is that as far as we go? It's not. We, the, the oldest of our core range is a 25-year-old. So if this is the big brother of original and 25-year-old is the father or the grandfather. And it's darker again in colour and it's got lots of very bold, chewy, oaky notes. Occasionally I'll release older ones um, depending on what I have available. But it's quite interesting that, you know, older is different. A lot of people think the older it is, the better it will be. It will just be different and it'll have a lot more influence from the oak wood in there. It's interesting because we do think older is better and because it's more expensive, it should be better. It's just that it's rare because what? Something called the angel share, correct? Correct. Tell us about that. Yep. As the whiskey is maturing, it has to breathe. It has to take oxygen in through the barrel to develop fragrance and finesse to it. But the inevitable side result of that is that we lose alcohol by evaporative loss. So we call that uh, the angel's share and we lose roughly 2% of the total alcohol per annum. Per year. So 2% yep. over yep. 18 years is 36% yep. of the product has yep. been evaporated. Yep. So you have to add 36% into the price, yep. right? Well, absolutely. That's yeah. a good point. I thought you were going to say have to add 36% alcohol back. <laughs> no, we add it into the price, of course. And it just means it's a different type of product. And I noticed that um, in terms of bourbon and scotch whiskey, scotch whiskey tends to be a little higher proof. It does. Um, when it comes off the stills, it does. And we would bottle, by law, it has to be a minimum of 40% alcohol, which is about 80 proof. But for some of our expressions, we'll bottle it higher than that. The Companta, which we're going to try, is bottled at 46%, about 92 proof. Yes, and I see. So we have three whiskeys here with mm-hmm. Dr. Bill Lumpson, the master distiller of Glen Morangie. And I'm looking at some of the paper uh, marketing sheets here. We've got something called Nectar d'Or, Quinto Ruban, La yep. Santa, and um, the quarter century 25-year-old yeah. Insignet. Yeah. Those are... Those packaging and the names sound fantastic. Mm. Nectar d'Or is with uh, uh, Sauterne barrels, Sauterne, right? Yeah. It's 10 years. It's essentially Glenmorangie original, which is then transferred into French oak Sauterne wine barrels for another two years. So we've taken lots of that lovely dessert-like characteristic from the French wine. And they call that a finishing yep. or a mat? What is it? The, the, the term you use is either wood finishing because it's allowed to finish its maturation a different wood or extra maturation. And it allows you to take a little bit of the character of the wine, but without losing your unique house style. I love how wine is such an integral part yeah, of scotch. Yeah, yeah. 
And so tell us about the Campanta. Yeah, Campanta, Scottish Gaelic word, which means friendship. And it's a play on the old alliance between Scotland and France, but more specifically on my love of things French, especially the wine. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And the term whiskey, I see that there's whiskey with the, uh, just W-H-I-S-K-Y, which is Scotch whiskey, and American whiskey and Canadian whiskey has an E on the yeah. end, correct? Yep. It's, there's nothing by law in that. It's just purely stylistically the way people want to spell it. Our Japanese friends use it without an E as well. And there is one bourbon distiller in the U.S. which drops the E. So oh. there's not any rules surrounding okay. that. So it's all equal. Yeah. So the Campanta, this is a beautiful colour. Yeah. How did it get so dark? Yep, it took that colour from the inside of some fabulous burgundy wine casts I bought from a very famous vineyard called Clos de Tarte, which is one of the five Grand Cru monopoles in Burgundy. Momassan. Momassan, indeed, yep. yeah. I visited the vineyard, had lunch with a head winemaker and fell in love with it. And managed to persuade Monsieur Pitio to sell me his barrels from the 2007 vintage. From a red wine barrel? Yeah, yeah. That's wild. Yeah. But I also have mixed it together with another Glenmorangie from a little-known sweet wine from the Rhone Valley called Rasto. So it's about 60% Clos de Tarte, 40% Rasto, and I've just let the two elements marry together. Amazing. So I invite everybody in Happy Hour Radio Land to try the Glenmorangie original, the Glenmorangie Extremely Rare 18-year, and the Campanta, which we're tasting now. This has just got lots, lots of flavors. It is definitely a heavier mm-hmm. uh, spirit with uh, the, the adding maturation of the Clos de Tarte and Rasto yeah. barrels. And it also takes, French oak has far more tannin than American oak, so you take quite a lot of that. It gives a bit of texture, gives some nice spicy flavor. So you have to be careful not to over-egg the pudding, as we say. <laughs> mm. I love you. It's, you. Right, you can ruin the spirit yeah. by doing too yeah. much. And yeah. I think you've got great balance, and that's why you are the whiskey creator at mm. Glen Morangie. Mm. Well, Dr. Bill, this has been a pleasure. I've learned so much about Glen Morangie, and um, it's, it's so fun to see the different profiles and just to take time to realize how complex they are. Yep, there's huge complexity in the flavor of malt whiskey. And again, for Glenmorangie, I use lightly peated malt. I use American oak barrels because I want a lot of that complexity to shine through. It's been a pleasure to have you. Hope you enjoyed your time at Happy Hour. My pleasure, Chris. Thank you very much. Fantastic. That was Dr. Bill Lumpson with Glenn Morangi. Hey, um, thanks for listening to Happy Hour Radio. Uh, Send us an email at ask at happyhourradio.net. Coming up next week, we have um, a great show. We've got uh, people from Red Mountain AVA. Uh, We've got master brewer Charles Finkel and port specialist Roy Hirsch for the love of port. Hey, look forward to see you tomorrow at Seattle Wine and Food Experience and at Esquin Wine and Spirits for the Duckhorn Tasting on Wednesday, the 26th of February. Thanks for listening to Happy Hour Radio. Cheers, be safe, drive safe, and I'll see you next week, Saturday at 11, right here on KBI.